He's debated the top atheist scholars, philosophers, and scientists in the world today on the existence of God and shown that belief in God is rational, reasonable, holds up to intense scrutiny, and is in fact the superior worldview. Today, you'll hear Dr. William Lane Craig give evidence from science, history, and philosophy that God exists. Welcome to Evidence and Answers with Pat Zuckerman. Dr. Zuckerman is a scholar, author, and speaker who addresses spiritual and cultural issues of concern to all of us. Dr. Craig joined Pat at the 2011 Hawaii Apologetics Conference, and today we'll bring you part two of his fascinating presentation on the existence of God. And by the way, this entire conference featuring Dr. William Lane Craig and Dr. Zuckerman is available on our website, evidenceandanswers.org. Along with the conference, you'll find articles, books, interviews, and past radio shows on everything from atheism to Zen Buddhism. That's evidenceandanswers.org. Check it out today. And now, here's Dr. William Lane Craig with part two of Five Evidences for God. The existence of intelligent life depends upon a conspiracy of initial conditions which must be fine-tuned to a degree that is literally incalculable and incomprehensible. This fine-tuning is of two types. First, when the laws of nature are expressed as mathematical equations, you find appearing in them certain constants, like the gravitational constant. The values of these constants are independent of the laws of nature. The laws of nature are consistent with a wide range of values of these constants. Secondly, in addition to these constants, there are certain arbitrary quantities which are simply put in as initial conditions on which the laws of nature then operate. For example, the amount of entropy in the early universe or the balance between matter and antimatter. And all of these constants and quantities must fall into an extraordinarily narrow range of life-permitting values. If they were to be altered by less than a hair's breadth, the balance would be destroyed and life could not exist. For example, Stephen Hawking has estimated that if the rate of the universe's expansion one second after the Big Bang had been smaller by even one part in a hundred thousand million million, the universe would have recollapsed long ago into a hot fireball. PCW Davies has calculated that in order to be suitable for later star formation, the initial conditions of the universe had to be fine-tuned to precision of one followed by a thousand billion billion zeros at least. He also estimates that a change in the subatomic weak force by only one part out of ten to the one hundredth power would have prevented a life-permitting universe. Roger Penrose of Oxford University has calculated that the odds against the initial conditions of the universe having the low entropy condition that it does are on the order of one chance out of 10 to the power of 10 to the power of 123, a number which is so incomprehensible that to call it astronomical would be a wild understatement. All of these constants and quantities must fall into this exquisitely narrow range of life-permitting values in order for the universe to permit life anywhere in the cosmos. And it's not just each quantity which has to be finely tuned in this way. Their ratios to one another must also be exquisitely fine-tuned. So improbability is multiplied by improbability by improbability until our minds are reeling in incomprehensible numbers. Now, there are only three possibilities for explaining this remarkable fine-tuning of the universe. Natural law, chance, or design. 
The first alternative holds that the fine-tuning of the universe is physically necessary. There's some unknown theory that would explain why the constants and quantities have the values they do. And there's really no chance or little chance of the universe is not being life-permitting. By contrast, the second alternative says that the fine-tuning of the universe is due entirely to chance. It's just an accident that the constants and quantities all fall into the narrow life-permitting range and we're the lucky beneficiaries. The third alternative rejects both of these accounts in favor of an intelligent mind behind the cosmos who designed the universe to permit life. And the question is, which of these three alternatives is the most plausible? Well, the first alternative, physical necessity or law, seems extraordinarily implausible. There's just no physical reason why these constants and quantities have the values they do. As I've already said, these constants are independent of the laws of nature and therefore cannot be explained by nature's laws. And there is simply nothing to account for the arbitrary quantities that serve as the initial conditions. As Paul Davies says, even if the laws of physics were unique, it doesn't follow that the physical universe itself is unique. The laws of physics must be augmented by cosmic initial conditions. There is nothing in present ideas about laws of initial conditions remotely to suggest their consistency with the laws of physics would imply uniqueness. Far from it. It seems then, he concludes, that the physical universe does not have to be the way it is. It could have been otherwise. And thus that first alternative, physical necessity, just seems untenable. So what about the second alternative? That the fine-tuning of the universe is due to chance. Well, the problem with this alternative is that the odds against all the constants and quantities being life-permitting are so incomprehensibly great that they cannot be reasonably faced. Uh, lay people or students who just sort of blithely assert, oh, well, it could have happened by chance, simply have no idea of the fantastic precision of the fine-tuning that is necessary for life. They would never embrace this sort of hypothesis to explain any other phenomenon in their life. For example, if they woke up one morning and found an automobile in their driveway, no one would invoke the possibility of chance. And yet that is far, far more probable, incomprehensibly more probable than the fine-tuning of the universe. Now, some people have tried to escape this problem by saying we shouldn't really be surprised at the fine-tuning of the universe for intelligent life. Because after all, if the universe were not fine-tuned, then we wouldn't be here to be surprised about it. Given that I am here, I should expect the universe to be fine-tuned. But I think that the fallacy of this reasoning can be made very clear by means of a parallel illustration. Imagine that you were traveling abroad and you were arrested on trumped-up drug charges and dragged in front of a firing squad of 100 trained marksmen, all with rifles aimed at your heart to be executed. You hear the command given, ready, aim, fire! And you hear the deafening roar of the guns. And then, and then, you observe that you're still alive. That all of the 100 marksmen missed. Now, what would you conclude? Well, I guess I shouldn't be surprised if they all missed. After all, if they hadn't all missed, I wouldn't be here to be surprised about it. Given that I am here, I should have expected them all to miss. Well, of course not you would immediately suspect that they all missed on purpose. That the whole thing was a setup, arranged for some reason by someone. And in exactly the same way, 
Given the incomprehensible improbability of the fine-tuning of the universe for intelligent life, it is rational to believe that this is not the result of chance, but of design. So, once again, the view that Christian theists have always held, that there is an intelligent designer of the universe, seems to make much more sense than the atheistic view that the universe, when it popped into being, uncaused, out of absolutely nothing, just happened to be, by chance, fine-tuned to an incomprehensible precision for the existence of intelligent life. We can summarize this second argument also very simply. Premise one, the fine-tuning of the universe is due to either physical necessity, chance, or design. Two, it is not due to physical necessity or chance. Three, therefore, it is due to design. Number three, God makes sense of objective moral values and duties in the world. If God does not exist, then objective moral values do not exist. By objective moral values, I mean moral values which are valid and binding independently of whether anybody believes in them or not. And many atheists and theists alike agree that if God does not exist, then moral values are not objective in that sense. For example, the late J.L. Mackey of Oxford University, one of the most influential atheists of our time, admitted, and I quote, if there are objective values, they make the existence of a God more probable than it would have been without them. Thus, we have a defensible argument from morality to the existence of a God. But in order to avoid God's existence, Mackey therefore denied that objective moral values exist. He wrote, it is easy to explain this moral sense as a natural product of biological and social evolution. Professor Michael Roos, who is an agnostic philosopher of science, agrees. He explains, and I quote, morality is a biological adaptation, no less than our hands and feet and teeth. Considered as a rationally justifiable set of claims about an objective something, ethics is illusory. I appreciate that when somebody says, love thy neighbor as thyself, they think they are referring above and beyond themselves. Nevertheless, such reference is truly without foundation. Morality is just an aid to survival and reproduction, and any deeper meaning is illusory." End quote. Friedrich Nietzsche, the great 19th century atheist who proclaimed the death of God, understood that the death of God meant the destruction of all meaning and value in life. I think that Friedrich Nietzsche was right. But we've got to be very careful here. The question here is not, is not, must we believe in God in order to live moral lives? I'm not claiming that we must. Nor is the question, can we recognize objective moral values without believing in God? I certainly think that we can. Rather, the question here is, if God does not exist, do objective moral values exist. And like Mackey and Roos, I frankly just don't see any reason to think that in the absence of God, the morality evolved by homo sapiens on this planet is objective. After all, if there is no God, then what's so special about human beings? They're just accidental byproducts of nature which have evolved relatively recently on an infinitesimal speck of dust called the planet Earth, which are doomed to perish individually and collectively in a relatively short time. 
On the atheistic view, some actions, say rape, may not be socially or biologically advantageous, and so in the course of human evolution, it's become taboo. But that does absolutely nothing to prove that rape is really wrong. On the atheistic view, there's nothing really wrong with raping someone. Thus, without God, there is no absolute right and wrong that imposes itself on our conscience. But the problem is that objective values do exist. In moral experience, we apprehend a realm of objective moral values and duties that impose themselves upon us. There's no more reason to deny the objective reality of moral values than the objective reality of the physical world. Things like rape, torture, and child abuse aren't just socially unacceptable behavior. They're moral abominations. Michael Roos himself, in another context, states the man who says that it is morally acceptable to rape little children is just as mistaken as the man who says two plus two equals five. Some things, at least, are really wrong. Similarly, love, equality, and self-sacrifice are really good. But if objective moral values cannot exist without God, and objective values do exist, then it follows logically and inescapably that God exists. So once again, we can summarize this argument in three simple steps. Number one, if God does not exist, objective moral values do not exist. Two, objective moral values do exist, from which it follows logically and inescapably. Three, therefore, God exists. Number four, God makes sense of the historical facts concerning the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. The historical person, Jesus of Nazareth, was by all accounts a remarkable individual. New Testament historians have reached something of a consensus that Jesus came on the scene with an unprecedented sense of divine authority, the authority to stand and speak in God's place. That's why the Jewish leadership instigated his crucifixion on the charge of blasphemy. He claimed that in himself, the kingdom of God had come. And as visible demonstrations of this fact, he carried out a ministry of miracle working and exorcisms. But the supreme confirmation of his claim was his resurrection from the dead. If Jesus really did rise from the dead, then it would seem that we have a divine miracle on our hands and thus evidence for the existence of God. Now there are four established facts recognized by the majority of New Testament scholars today which I believe support the resurrection of Jesus. His honorable burial, his empty tomb, his post-mortem appearances, and the very origin of the disciples' belief in his resurrection. Let me say just a word about each of these. First, fact number one, following his crucifixion, Jesus' corpse was laid in a tomb by a man named Joseph of Arimathea. The majority of New Testament historians today agree that a member of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish high court that tried and condemned Jesus on charges of blasphemy, a man named Joseph of Arimathea, took Jesus' body and interred it in a tomb late on the afternoon of Jesus' crucifixion. According to the late John A.T. Robinson of Cambridge University, the burial of Jesus in the tomb is, and I quote, one of the earliest and best attested facts about Jesus. Fact number two, Jesus' tomb was then found empty by a group of his women followers on the Sunday morning after the crucifixion. According to Jakob Kramer, who is an Austrian specialist on the resurrection, and I quote, by far most scholars hold firmly to the reliability of the biblical statements about the empty tomb. 
According to D.H. Van Dalen, a Dutch scholar, it is extremely difficult to object to the empty tomb on historical grounds. Those who deny it, he says, do so on the basis of theological or philosophical assumptions, not on historical grounds. Fact number three, on separate occasions, different individuals and groups of people saw appearances of Jesus alive after his death. According to Gaut Ludemann, who is a prominent German New Testament critic, and I quote, it may be taken as historically certain that Peter and the disciples had experiences after Jesus' death in which Jesus appeared to them as the risen Christ, end quote. These appearances were witnessed not only by believers, but also by unbelievers, skeptics, and even enemies. Finally, fact number four, the original disciples suddenly came to believe in the resurrection of Jesus despite having every predisposition to the contrary. Think of the situation that the disciples faced following Jesus' crucifixion. Number one, their leader was dead, and Jewish messianic expectations included no idea of a Messiah who instead of triumphing over Israel's enemies and reestablishing the throne of David in Jerusalem would be humiliatingly executed by them as a common criminal. Secondly, in Old Testament law, Jesus' execution exposed him as a heretic, a man literally accursed by God. And thirdly, Jewish beliefs about the afterlife precluded anyone's rising from the dead to glory and immortality before the resurrection at the end of the world. Nevertheless, the original disciples suddenly and sincerely came to believe so strongly that God had raised Jesus from the dead that they were willing to die for the truth of that belief. Luke Johnson, who is a New Testament scholar at Emory University, says some sort of powerful transformative experience is required to generate the sort of movement earliest Christianity was. And N.T. Wright, who is an eminent British scholar, concludes, that is why, as an historian, I cannot explain the rise of early Christianity unless Jesus rose again, leaving an empty tomb behind him. Attempts to explain away these uh, four great facts, like the disciples stole the body, or uh, Jesus wasn't really dead, have been universally rejected among New Testament scholars today. There just is no plausible naturalistic explanation of these four facts. And therefore, it seems to me, the Christian is amply justified in believing that Jesus rose from the dead and therefore was who he claimed to be. And that entails that the God proclaimed by Jesus of Nazareth exists. So we have a good inductive argument for the existence of God from the resurrection of Jesus. Number one, there are four established facts concerning the fate of Jesus of Nazareth. His honorable burial by Joseph of Arimathea, the discovery of his empty tomb, his post-mortem appearances, and the origin of his disciples' belief in his resurrection. Two, the hypothesis, God raised Jesus from the dead is the best explanation of these facts. Three, the hypothesis, God raised Jesus from the dead entails that the God revealed by Jesus of Nazareth exists for, therefore, the God revealed by Jesus of Nazareth exists. Finally, number five, God can be immediately known and experienced. Now, this isn't really an argument for God's existence. Rather, it's the claim that you can know that God exists wholly apart from arguments, simply by immediately experiencing him. 
This was the way that people in the Bible knew God. As Professor John Hick explains, God was known to them as a dynamic will, interacting with their own wills, a sheer given reality, as inescapably to be reckoned with as destructive storm and life-giving sunshine. They did not think of God as an inferred entity, but as an experienced reality. To them, God was not an idea adopted by the mind, but an experiential reality which gave significance to their lives. Philosophers call beliefs like this properly basic beliefs. They aren't based on other beliefs. Rather, they're part of the foundation of a person's system of beliefs. Other properly basic beliefs would include beliefs like the reality of the past, the existence of the external world, the presence of other minds beside your own. When you think about it, none of these beliefs can be proven. How could you prove that the world was not created five minutes ago with food in our stomachs from the dinners we never really ate and memory traces in our brains of events that we never really experienced? How could you prove that you're not a brain in a vat uh, of chemicals wired up with electrodes being stimulated by some mad scientist to make you think that you're really here in this uh, sanctuary listening to this talk? He might even be stimulating your brain to think that it would be absurd to think that you're a brain in a vat rather than being here in the lecture. How could you prove that the other people sitting around you are not really just androids who exhibit external behavior like people with minds, but in fact they're merely mindless, soulless, robotic-like entities? None of these things can be proved. These beliefs are simply properly basic beliefs that lie at the foundations of our system of beliefs. Now, saying that these are basic beliefs doesn't mean that they're arbitrary or irrational. Rather, they are grounded in that they are formed in the context of the experience of certain yeah. things. For example, in the experiential context of seeing and hearing and feeling things, I naturally right. I like form that. the belief that there is a world of external objects around me which I'm sensing. And thus, my basic beliefs are not arbitrary, but they're grounded in my experience. There may be no way to prove such beliefs, but nevertheless, you are perfectly rational to hold them. In fact, you'd have to be crazy to think that the world was created five minutes ago, or to think that you're really a brain in a vat. These beliefs are not merely basic, they are properly basic beliefs. Now, in exactly the same way, belief in God is, for those who seek him, a properly basic belief grounded in our experience of God himself. And we can exhibit this in the form of this syllogism. Number one, beliefs which are appropriately grounded may be rationally accepted as basic beliefs, not grounded in argument. Two, belief that the biblical God exists is appropriately grounded for those who experience him. Three, therefore, belief that the biblical God exists may be rationally accepted as a basic belief not grounded in argument. Now, if this is right, then it means that there's a real danger that arguments for the existence of God could actually distract your attention from God himself. We could get so wrapped up in the external arguments that we fail to hear the voice of God speaking to our own hearts. And I want to say if there's anyone here tonight who has not yet come to know God as a personal reality in your life, that if you're sincerely seeking God, God will make his existence evident to you. The Bible promises, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. 
We mustn't so concentrate on the external arguments that we fail to hear the inner voice of God speaking to our own hearts. For those who listen, belief in God becomes a properly basic belief grounded in the immediate experience of God himself. So, in conclusion then, I think that the hypothesis that God exists makes good sense out of a wide range of the data of human experience. God makes sense of the origin of the universe. God makes sense of the complex order in the universe. God makes sense of the existence of objective moral values in the world. God makes sense of the historical facts concerning the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And God can be immediately known and experienced. For all of these reasons, I am enthusiastically a Christian theist. That was Dr. William Lane Craig presenting five evidences for God on Evidence and Answers with Pat Zuckerin. Dr. Craig joined Pat Zuckerin as part of the 2011 Hawaii Apologetics Conference and is all available on our website, evidenceandanswers.org. This exciting conference also featured topics like science and religion, the existence of God, can we be good without God, the new atheist and their case against God, and the problem of God and evil. Download this conference and you'll take your study of these crucial topics to the next level. Go right now to evidenceandanswers.org. And we also invite you to support us financially. Your stewardship and giving helps keep Evidence and Answers on this station and keeps Pat speaking all over the world and organizing conferences like this. Today, more than ever, people need biblical answers to their questions about God and His love for us and the evidence to support those answers. So please let us hear from you today. Just click the donate button at evidenceandanswers.org. That's evidenceandanswers.org. And thank you so much. Thank you for being here. We'll see you next time on Evidence and Answers with Pat Zuckerman.